Thank you, Pastor Gabe, and welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are joining us, whatever platform you're, uh, you're listening to us, Facebook, YouTube, uh, through, our, um, through our website. However you're getting us, we're glad that you're here. Um, I have a word this morning. We are continuing in our series. Um, our new series is called Trey Asar, which means the 12 in Hebrew. It's specifically a series about the 12 Old Testament minor prophets. That's what our series is, um, and I'll get to more of that later. But this morning, as I was praying with the worship team and we were kind of preparing our hearts for the services today, I had a word from the Lord, and it was just about hope. And then I found out that the very first song the worship team was going to do was all about hope as well. So I think the Lord's trying to tell us something here, and, it, and it's this. We can have hope, and hope is an assurance that God is good. God has always been good, and God wants the best for us. God will help us to navigate these times, and God will ultimately deliver us. So we have this assurance, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have faith in those things and those promises as being true. But here's what the Lord spoke to me this morning is, if you're not a Christian, or maybe you have questions or doubts, how do you relay this hope that you have inside you, this hope that, that, that I pray is helping all of us navigate this time of uncertainty with more peace and more calm in a way that glorifies the Lord, maybe more so than ever. But as compared to those who don't know the Lord, there should be a difference. And that difference is only possible with the Holy Spirit in us. But if you're talking to somebody who's not a follower of Christ, how do you explain to them how that's different? And I think that in a nutshell is why we teach at this church, we teach the way that we do. Because I go back to what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3, and he's telling the people, he says, hey, be ready to have an explanation, an answer for the hope that is inside you. Among ourselves, among the Christian family and the body of Christ, we can just say, I have faith that God is good. But that doesn't resonate as well with those who don't know the Lord. It can't possibly resonate with those people the same. So, be ready to have an answer. And that's why we teach Scripture here. We teach the Word of the Lord because I want you to be comfortable and familiar with the promises of God so that you can explain that then when people ask you, how is it that you can be so calm in a time like this? It's certainly not through anything that we do or some power of our own. It is through the grace and the mercy of our God. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We're getting into this, into this series on the, on the Treasar, again, the 12 minor prophets. And we're going to teach through why. Why now? The reason now is because these 12, almost like more than any of the other prophets in Old Testament Scripture, have these very pinpointed specific words for the people that God is asking them to minister to. So these 12 books, they highlight these these themes like social justice, like doubt in times of, of catastrophe, of, um, of spiritual uh, hypocrisy, faith struggles, um, perseverance when you're just strictly tired of persevering. These are all themes that we find in these 12 books, and that's why now more than ever I think it's great to look back and see, this wasn't just a word for those times, but it's a word for us now that will help us persevere. And even to put a better point on why it's important to, to study the prophets of Old Testament Scripture comes from one of the 12 prophets, Amos. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Now, at that time, it was secret counsel relayed to the prophets who then relayed it to the people. What God's word? We have the Holy Spirit in us. We also have the written word of God. This isn't secret counsel anymore. This is available to us, and I hope that we allow it to encourage us and guide us in our lives. So these 12 prophets... Um, 
They weren't, they called them minor, but not because of the importance of their writing, but because of the brevity of their writing. We see Isaiah and some of these prophets that are just very prolific in the things that they have written. These prophets are, they're, rather than a broadsword, they're more like a scalpel in terms of the very specific purpose, the time, the place, the people, and the word they have to deliver to the, the people that God brings them into. So what we're looking at today, again, is, is the prophet Joel is how it's in the, in the Bible. You might see it, but it's pronounced Yoel. I'll try to use Yoel as we go through to help us get in that habit. Um, it's not Jor-El or Kal-El. Some of you Superman fans might be um, thinking about that, and that's, that's fun, but the name really, it's Yoel, and it means, it's a Hebrew word, it means Yahweh is God. So that's who we're talking about here. Yoel was a prophet who we don't know an awful lot about his background, where he came from, or, or really an awful lot about him. Scripture talks about who his father was, but we don't really know anything about his father either, at least not much about his father. He prophesied to the nation of Judah. God sent him to deliver a word to the nation of Judah at approximately 835 or so B.C., Okay, we say approximately because we're extrapolating those times from other events that happen and kind of coming up with an approximate time that we're doing this. Now, we have an image here of kind of what Yoel might look like. This is Michelangelo's interpretation on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Those of you who have been to Rome and maybe seen this, um, that would have to be an amazing sight. I hope someday that I'm able to go there and see it myself. Um, but that's his interpretation of what Yoel looked like. At the time that Yoel prophesied, Assyria was the dominant uh, power in the region, kind of the regional power. They sort of were asserting their, their authority and their dominance and their influence all over this area. And, and this is what the people of Judah and Israel were dealing with at the time. This is uh, the book of Yoel is if you talk biblical genres, which are like you have the books of the law, you have the books of poems, the books of wisdom, um, you have these sorts of, of different genres in there. The book of Yoel is apocalyptic, which sounds very ominous, right? But apocalyptic is should remind us of books like Daniel and Revelation that deal primarily with the end times, meaning the 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 finish, the culmination of the kingdom. And our exhortation through all those books is essentially this, finish well, hold firm, stand firm to the promises of God, be who you are, be who God says you are, hold firm and finish well because there's a prize that awaits us all at the end. That's kind of the theme and the idea of apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature and that's what Yoel is. A little bit more about him and about the book. Yoel is a pre-exilic prophet, pre-exile, which means that he prophesied before the exile, before the Babylonians came in. Uh, it was about a 70-year period around 600 or so B.C. where the Babylonians came in and conquered and, and sent basically all of Israel into exile for that short period of time. Um, so we divide prophets into Old Testament scripture time into pre-exile and post-exile because their messages are somewhat different in that, in that category. Now, so again, pre-exilic, uh, he's a contemporary, meaning he, he prophesied at about the same time that Elijah, Elisha, and then from last weekend we had Ovadia. And so he was kind of prophesying roughly at around those same times. Now, he also prophesied during a time of a divided kingdom. Now, I want to take a minute and talk about what a divided kingdom is, okay? Divided, uh, divided kingdom and pre-exile, post-exile are terms that we throw around a lot sometimes, and I think if we don't really have an understanding, it's hard to have a context for what's going on. I want to take a minute and talk about, about uh, the divided kingdom. So, um, around 1400 or so, B.C., that's when the exodus happens. That's when Moses leads the Israelites 
out of Egypt, okay? They wander the desert, we know, for quite some time. Now, it's about 400 years or so later that they established the first king of the nation of Israel. And that first king, anybody know who that first king is? That first king is Saul. And that's give or take at around 1,000 or so B.C. But not long after that, the kingdom of Israel divides. And this is what we're going to talk about right here. Let's take a quick look at how this happens. Tribal conflicts now, ever since the time of Moses, tribal conflicts have been happening all throughout the Israelite people. Just constant bickering and squabbling and back and forth and issues. But a good, strong leader could keep them in check. Good, strong leader could keep those things from getting out of control, from bubbling to the top. But it's always been a problem going all the way back to Jacob and Esau, right, which we talked about last week when we, when we taught about Ovadia. We know that's a problem. Jacob's children uh, from two different wives, Leah and Rachel, we know that they were constantly kind of at each other in a little bit of turmoil. And they then spread out, and they essentially started these 12 tribes. It's another teaching, but essentially started these 12 tribes. Now, these 12 tribes, again, constant friction between them. Now, Saul gives way to David. We know the story about David from many different sources. David was a man after God's own heart, um, a mighty man, did a million amazing things, a couple really, really specific things. He didn't do so well. But then, he is, he is strong leader, but his time comes to an end. And he hands off the leadership, the kingship of Israel, hands it off to his son, Solomon. Now, Solomon is, is also anointed by God. In fact, God tasks Solomon. Now, they're in, they're in Jerusalem now. They're where they've been promised to be. They're in the promised land, and God tasks Solomon with building the temple. Okay, so he's, he's got this task. And this is approximately or so um, 966 B.C. So quite a while. We pick this up in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. I think you have it on screen. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. So 480 years after the exodus... Now we find ourselves in Jerusalem and beginning this project, okay? In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. It's an auspicious start. God has blessed him. God has tasked him with building the house of the Lord, and things start out well. However, like any modern building project, Things kind of spile out of control. The bureaucracy and all the things that go along with it slowly gather momentum and take on a life of their own, and this creates problems. It did thousands of years ago, and it still does today. We can draw all kinds of parallels between the things that were happening then and the things that happen now. So think that through as we walk through what's going on here. Now, a little bit later in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, I'll read this one to you. My version, by the way, is the New American Standard Bible. So follow along in your Bible, but if it reads a little bit different, that's because of different versions. We'll talk about that at some point later. 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building... If you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all of my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will not forsake my people, Israel. In the middle of this big building project, okay, God comes to Solomon and says, if you just walk in my statutes, execute my ordinances, keep my commandments, then, and he gives him this promise. Now, question for all of you at home, does Solomon walk in those ordinances? Is he faithful to what God had instructed him here? No, it wouldn't be much of a story if he did, right? We see time and time again, Solomon turns from God. 
We see that in Scripture. 1 Kings 11, verse 9 says this. I think we have it on screen. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. You can read 1 Kings chapters 11 to 14 to get kind of that whole story of what's going on there. I recommend that you do that. But even with God appearing to Solomon twice, giving him clear words and direction, if you do this, then I will do this, he still couldn't maintain and hold it together. So here's kind of, let me give you the condensed version of those chapters in what's going on here. We see again Solomon in the middle of this big building project, and he has taken one of his servants, okay, now this servant has kind of risen to the top, uh, he's excelling, he, scripture says that he's a valiant warrior, um, he's a good administrator, he's, he's a really strong personality, okay, and his name is Herobam. Your Bible might, it might be written as Jeroboam or Jeroboam, okay? And you can call it that. It's actually pronounced Jeroboam. He sees a problem. The problem is he has been taken and elevated, and he's been put in position to basically be what we would maybe call minister of the interior. He's overseeing this giant building project for King Solomon, The problem is he's been elevated from just a common person and now he's getting a glimpse behind the curtain, if you will, on the things that are happening. He's seeing the division of labor. Now remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel and he's seeing the division of labor being extremely skewed in favor of the nation of Judah or the tribe of Judah at the time. And he sees the burden being placed excessively on the remaining tribes, not only the physical burden of labor being provided to build this, but of a financial burden, excessive taxation. He sees behind the curtain the iniquity that's going on, the, the extra burden that the, the other tribes are shouldering on behalf of Judah. And he's got a problem with this, like many would. Why is it not fair? Why are they paying more than their fair share and they are paying less than their fair share? And he begins to really have a problem with this. And not only that, but he begins to be vocal about his problems with this. He begins to rebel against his authority. Excuse me. And he's in the middle of of this rebellion of the heart at this point. And he meets by chance. We call it by chance. We know in Scripture there's nothing that happens by chance. But it's a chance meeting on the road with a prophet named Ahijah or Ahijah, A-H-I-J-A-H, just a, a prophet for a time and a place, one specific word to deliver to Herobam. And what he says is this. He says, take my robe, tear it into 12 strips. Keep 12 strips of those for yourself, and the other two shall belong to the descendants of David. You can read about that in Scripture. And at the time, Herobam might not have really got what was going on here. But what's being told to him is you will be given charge over 10 of the 12 tribes. The other two will belong to David's line, the line of Judah and their descendants. So he's prophesying that there will be a division of the kingdom here. Now, Herobam then begins to make plans against Solomon. Starts planning, plotting, and in fact gets discovered. He's not terribly sneaky. He's pretty vocal about his displeasure with the way things are going. And he begins to fear that Solomon's going to have him killed. He's probably right. Begins to fear that, and in fact he flees. Now, ironically, he flees to Egypt the place that it took him so long to get out of, that's where he flees for safety. Now, this is where he is. He stays there for a while. Solomon eventually passes away. And when he passes away, he gives leadership of the country. It passes on to his son, Rehoboam. It says Rehoboam. Might be how your Bible uh, writes it out there. But it's Rehoboam. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes over as leader. Now, he picks up right where Solomon left off at the building projects, and he's, and he's carrying out Solomon's work at the time. 
Now, hearing that Solomon has passed away, Horobam from Egypt decides it's probably safe for me to go back home. So he travels back home to Jerusalem. Now, in God's timing, um, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is actually in the middle of giving what we might call his acceptance speech or his coronation speech. He's talking about all the great things he's going to do and continue when this guy named Horobam shows up in the back of the crowd and starts heckling this speech. And he starts throwing out questions like, what are you going to do about the unfair taxation? What are you going to do about the unfair labor distribution? What are you going to do about the treatment of the people? What are you going to do? And he starts throwing out all these questions, to which Rehoboam says, um, let me get back to you. He's got no answer for it. Let me get back to you. In wisdom, he doesn't try to answer him right then, okay? He wish sometimes our leadership would take that kind of wisdom and say, let me get back to you, instead of having to have an answer. But he goes and he consults his, his uh, leadership at that time, consisted of a bunch of elders who were actually elders under his father. They had worked with his father, they had advised his father, and they were, they were very wise men, had a lot of wisdom to offer, and he goes and he consults them, which is a smart thing to do. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 6 and 7 documents how that conversation went. I'll read it to you. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you cancel, counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Okay, that sounds like wise wisdom. Give them what they're asking for today and they'll be yours forever. That sounds like good counsel. However, like most young rulers, politicians, they think they've got a better way to do it. So instead of listening to their counsel, he decides he's going to turn to his posse, his bunch of his buds that he's grown up with and hung out with. These are all good friends of his that he's surrounded himself with, his, his personal inner circle, and he asks them the same question. Well, their answer is a little bit different. What they advise him is they say, hey, rather than to give in to their demands, you double down. Be more firm with them. Be more strict with them. And by doing that, they'll see that they can't mess with you. Of course, which advice do you think he takes? He decides, yeah, that sounds good. That's what I'm going to do. We see his response then to the crowd when he responds to their questions this way. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 11. Got it on screen. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined, with you, you disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. That is a way to win friends and influence people. I'm sure those in the crowd heard that and said, sounds good, I'm on board. That is absolutely not what happened. Not only does Rehoboam not lower their taxes, not lower their burdens, he increases them. Not a wise move at this time. And what we see is the northern tribes, what would become known as the northern tribes, they riot. They, in fact, they ultimately secede with Herobam, the servant, as their leader. They secede from this union, split off, and form the northern kingdom of Israel. The first king of the northern tribe is Horobam. So, so Israel is actually born out of rebellion. It's not a good way to start something, is out of a spirit of rebellion. But this is what happens. They immediately, they shun the old ways and form what we would call maybe today a progressive state. Lower taxes, lower burden, the state will take care of you. And that doesn't really turn out well either. Long story for another day. But this is what we see. Rehoboam now, the rightful king, he hunkers down in Jerusalem and establishes the kingdom of Judah. So that's how we have a kingdom of Judah to the south and Israel to the north, a split, divided kingdom. Do you think, though, looking ahead, do you think these two 
kingdoms that started out together and then split, do you think they ever reconciled? You think they were ever able to coexist and manage life side by side? We know that they didn't from Scripture. 1 Kings 14, verse 30, there was war between Rehoboam and Herobam continually. Continually. They flat could not get along. Now, ultimately, though, God's mercy does promise a final reunion of these scattered tribes and we see that promise from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter, 12, chapter 11, verse 12 says, And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What he's talking about here hundreds of years later than this is a reunion of everyone under the banner of the Lion of Judah. This is... Jesus and his millennial reign, this is when they will be gathered. The nations, the tribes will be gathered together. So that is a very, very short history of the divided kingdoms, okay? This brings us then to the prophecy of Yoel. Now, the kingdoms have been divided for about 100 years now. Remember, the northern kingdom thought they had a better way to do it. The southern kingdom uh, thought they had already had the way to do it. And it wasn't long after that split that they couldn't even maintain that, that level of, of conviction with what they were doing. We see now the prophet Yoel having to come to the nation of Judah and give them a word of warning from God. Okay, so this is where we are. Now, here's the scene, what's going on in Judah at the time that Yoel comes to them to prophesy. You would think typically a prophet's going to come and give you words of encouragement. Not so much in this. This is how we know the Bible is real because he's got, he's got a harsh word at a time that they're going through the worst. In other words, he doesn't soft pedal anything. He doesn't baby them. He lays it out for them. Here's what's going on at Judah at the time. They are in the middle of a horrible, horrible plague of locusts a horrible drought, and a horrible famine that comes from this drought. This great locust plague is absolutely just ravaging, ravaging Judah. Drought and famine aren't something that typically come on in, in a period of a week or a short period. It typically lasts years. And they are still in the midst of this when the prophet comes to them. Now, there's no mention of exactly what their specific sins were that needed to be corrected by God, probably because there were so many of them. But this is a bad time they're coming through, and the prophet comes to deliver a word from God. Now, I'll divide this book of Yoel into three main sections, if you will. It's three chapters. It's an easy read if you want to read it on your own. Section one I'll call, You Think This Is Bad? You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Section two, I'll call the day of the Lord is coming. There's still time to repent. Section two. And then the third is, is literally God speaking deliverance for his people. This is where we are. Now, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is evident throughout this. If you look for it and track along with me, you'll see the good news of Christ throughout this. All right, so let's get into some scripture from Yoel. Yoel chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. He's saying, what you're going through now is worse than anything you've ever gone through before. Here's some pictures. This is... Um, Parched ground, dry, arid, nothing's growing. The vines have dried up. Swarms of locusts attacking the people, and people are fleeing for their lives, and the locusts are just chewing everything to the ground. This is the scene, and this is a terrible scene. The gnawing, swarming, crawling locusts have eaten everything. Verse 6 in Joel actually uses the imagery of an invading nation for how much damage these locusts are causing. But, but drought has dried up everything. It is a complete economic disaster, complete devastation of the land. And in this time, Yoel arrives and calls for prayer 
and fasting to beg God for deliverance. We pick this up, Yoel chapter 1, verses 14, 15. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Now this is actually the first mention in all of Scripture of this thing we call the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. Last week we taught about Ovadia. You can catch all that on, on whatever platform you're listening to now. Go back and listen to that uh, if you want to catch up to where we are. He alluded to the day of the Lord. Yoel here gives some details. Now, we can read through Scripture and do that, but the day of the Lord really basically consists of three different elements. The first one is the judgment of God's people. The second element is God's judgment of foreign nations, okay? And then the third element, if you will, of the day of the Lord is the purification and restoration of God's people through a time of tribulation. But there will be restoration. And when the time comes, the prophet Yoel says, you need to be ready. And the way you're acting now isn't the way to be ready for that. But there's still time. Yoel describes this coming day of the Lord. Yoel 2.2 says, The day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There never has been anything like it, nor will there again be after it to the years of many generations. He's saying essentially as bad as the plague is right now, it could be worse. But even in that, he's encouraging to hold on because there will be things to come that are much, much better. And God is merciful, and he wants nothing more than for you to turn away from your ways and turn towards him. This is the message of Yoel here. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Let me stop there. What he's saying is, I want your heart. You don't have to destroy everything you have. I just want your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. And he's saying, Cry out to me. I will hear you. God wants nothing more than to bless his people. Here's what it looks like, verses 15 to 17, what crying out to the Lord looks like. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, cry out, Spare your people, O Lord. And God speaks. God responds to them and promises, here is my reward for your repentance and your perseverance. Yoel chapter 2, verses 18, 19. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and new oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Then very shortly on from that, verse 27 of chapter 2 says, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. So get this picture. He is saying, persevere, hold on, repent of your ways now, and I will restore everything that has been taken from you. Everything that the plague and the drought and the famine has taken from you, I will restore, and then some. Then he drops this. Listen to this. It's the first glimpse we've got in all of Scripture from Yoel. He's listing, God is listing this material blessings that he will provide, that he will replenish. What you've lost, I'll replace. But then this spiritual blessing, unlike anything they'd ever had a chance to hear of or even wrap their mind around, 
Follow along in Scripture with me. Whatever version you're reading, this is Yoel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. You're not going to miss this. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. He's talking about, first of all, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon. This is the first time that this has been mentioned, this gift of the pouring out of the Spirit. In fact, we see Peter on the day of Pentecost. Remember, he's being, he's being accused of being drunk. And he quotes this, Acts 2, 14 to 21, if you want to read that on your own. But he quotes this word for word, this prophecy of Yoel, the Spirit being poured out into their hearts And then later, the promise of deliverance from all your enemies. And the Lord will dwell with the survivors. But only by being equipped through the Holy Spirit can they even hope to be ready to to accept and to live with the blessings that the Lord is going to rain down on them. Chapter 3, then, to wrap up the scripture here. Yoel 3.1 For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. So again, a promise. I will restore their fortunes and then some. Yoel 3.2 on screen. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. The nation of Israel at this time will be scattered all over the place. He promises to bring them together. Now, a quick note on the imagery of the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, at that time, they knew who Jehoshaphat was, the nation of Judah. They knew because he was a warrior, actually a fighter, sent out from them about 50 years before this prophecy to fight some attacking tribes. They were being invaded by a number of tribes together. And they sent Jehoshaphat out to meet them. He meets the attackers in this area and just whips them bad. Soundly, soundly defeats them. This was a place of great victory. We would would maybe like this place like when you think of Normandy or you think of Valley Forge where our country has fought and won these great victories. When they thought of the Valley of Jehoshaphat as it came to be known to them, they would have thought, this, this is a place of great victory. So in their minds, this is what they would have been thinking. We know later this very same valley appears again in Revelation. It's called at that point Har-Mageddon or Armageddon. We see that Revelation 16, 16. Read this on your own too. And they gathered them together to the place in which Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. It's the final battlefield. And it's in that very same place. Now, he's saying, Yoel is saying, this is going to be a time to fight alongside the Lord. You're going to need to take up arms and fight alongside the Lord. Yoel 3.10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. These were a peaceful, generally peaceful people. And he's saying, you're going to need, everyone is going to need to fight. Thankfully, we know this is going to be the last battle that he's prophesying about here. We see very shortly after another prophet we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, Micah, chapter 4, verse 3. Get this. Yoel 3.10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Micah 4.3 reverses that. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they train for war. It's a reversal of that. It's saying you will need to fight, but when that is over, there will be blessing and peace that you cannot even imagine right now. And this promise, this promise right here belongs to those who know the Lord and who trust 
in the Lord. Yoel chapter 3, verses 16, 17. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. That is the ultimate promise of those who repent of their ways and turn to and trust in the Lord as their deliverer. So the conclusion here that we look at, there was stuff going on in their world. Would you agree? Famine, drought. Now remember, that wiped out their crops. That wiped out their whole means of existence. Their economy had collapsed. People were dying of, of, of starvation, of lack of water, and locusts were eating anything that was left. It was a terrible time, never before seen anything like it. And in the midst of that, we're seeing that there is no excuse to place our trust in anything other than God and his goodness and his mercy. We don't need to trust in the latest press conference from our political leaders. We don't need to trust in is the check in the mail or is it not? We need to trust in God. Those are earthly things and concern, yes, look at them. Wisdom tells us to deal with those things, absolutely. But our trust, our energy, our heart, our focus should be on the promises of God because he promises he will heal our land. He will deliver us from our enemies. He will bless us beyond imagination and he will dwell with us in Zion. That's the ultimate promise. It doesn't matter what happens here on earth if we stay focused and keep our hearts and minds and our hope in the right place. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up. So to conclude this, what does God ask of his people? We see all these things going on and we see people going astray right and left. The entirety of scripture is pretty much how God gives instructions, people fail in those instructions, and yet God is still good. Instruction is given, we stray from it, and yet God can redeem. We see that over and over again, and that is only possible through faith and through the atoning work and the redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross. None of this is possible without that. So what God asks of his people, number one, know his son, Jesus. Know Jesus who gave it all for you. Repent, which just means to turn away from your earthly ways. Re repent of those things maybe that you've put your trust in that don't belong there. True repentance is only possible through Christ. He is our advocate. Through him we have the Holy Spirit who will testify to you Here's where you're placing your trust, and it doesn't belong there. And so that's going to be my prayer as we close up this message. Repentance isn't hiding your sin. Repentance isn't dependent on someone else participating in your repentance. Repentance doesn't involve laying blame. It's just understanding that you have failed to uphold the absolute high standards of God and asking for his forgiveness, which he will never withhold from you. This is what we're going to do. So I want to ask you, before we go into a time of communion, now would be the time to gather your communion supplies and the things you have. We'll take that together here in a moment. I want to ask you, is there something that the Lord is putting on your heart right now that you need to repent of? Something you're putting your trust, your hope, maybe excess energy into that is not from God? Maybe we're spinning at, tilting at windmills. We've heard different things where we are putting so much of our energy into things that aren't ordained by God. We need to be careful in those things and repent of those things that are not from him. So just join me in this prayer, wherever you are. Father God, first of all, I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your goodness that time and time again, we see that your mercy is not dependent on how good we are or how many things we do right or wrong. And I am so thankful for that. Your mercy is because of who you are, not because of who we are. But the things that we do, 
to, to turn away from you and turn towards other things. God, we wanna set those aside. So we ask you now to show us those things where we are placing more of our energy, more of our hope, more of our trust and faith than in you. Because God, we want, we want our faith to be where it belongs and we repent of those things that stand in the way of keeping our eyes focused on you. Father, we thank you for who you are and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So if you have your communion elements at home, go ahead and grab them. And let's celebrate what Jesus has done for us together. We see the account of the disciples in the upper room having a meal with Christ. And he takes some bread and he breaks it. And he gives it to them and he says, take this and eat. After partaking in what Jesus proclaims as his body, he offers a cup of wine. And he says, take this and drink for it is my blood, a new covenant offered for you. Through the new covenant of Jesus Christ that is only dependent on our keeping our eyes fixed on him, we have access to every promise of God in the entirety of scripture that's not something to be thankful for, I don't know what is. Join us in thankfulness and celebration of everything that the Lord God has done and enjoy some worship with us. Thank you, church.
you